1: society, think of wealth as the measuring stick of our lives. And you think of money as the measuring stick. And the reason is actually a functional one, in my opinion, which is just that it's the easiest. It's so easy to like stack yourself on the scoreboard of money. I met way too many people that had astronomical amounts of money that I would not qualify as happy by any stretch of the imagination. You know, I have a close friend who sold his company for a billion dollars recently. He made $300 million. I was asking him, like, are you materially happier now than you were when you were were just running the company and he said not really and the reason
0: is because hey friends welcome back to deep dive the weekly podcast where i chat to creators entrepreneurs authors and other inspiring people and we talk about how they got to where they are and the strategies techniques ideas mental models that we can apply to our own lives to help us live our best lives Now, what you're about to hear is a fantastic conversation, if I say so myself, between me and Sahil Bloom. Sahil is an ex-pro athlete. He used to be a professional baseball player, and now he is an entrepreneur, he's an angel investor, and he's absolutely huge on Twitter. He's like one of my favorite accounts to follow on Twitter. He's grown from zero to like 500,000 plus followers in like less than a year. And the stuff he tweets is just freaking amazing personal development, life advice, mental models type stuff. Sahil's also recently become a dad, and so we talk about how that's affected his approach to like life and happiness and productivity and I've learned so much from this conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Sahil, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having Um, me.
0: This is gonna be so much fun. I've been following you on Twitter. I feel like you've absolutely exploded on the Twitter scene in the last like year or so. So we definitely wanna talk about that. But I'd love to get started by kind of talking about what it's been like as a new dad. I'm curious because you have had a pretty illustrious career and then you had a kid. And I've heard from some people that when you're like a, tech bro, and then you have a kid, suddenly it gives you this newfound motivation for life because now you have a reason to ascend the ladder and acquire more because it comes at it comes at this for the sake of your kid rather than just for the sake of yourself how has your like drive and motivation changed since becoming a father
1: yeah there's so much to unpack here i think it's a great place to start the conversation because it actually speaks a lot to you know to me and to my changing motivations and and how i feel as a human being i you know first off what i would say is i think there is this general weird almost cynicism around parenthood that has permeated through culture broadly where like you know you say you're having a kid and everyone's first reaction is like, oh, you know, get your sleep now, or, uh, you know, like, hope you had fun, you know, hope you had your fun years in, or, you know, like, all of the all of the stuff is like, you know, people are sort of saying it jokingly, but there is this feeling of, like, your life is kind of over, like, that part of your life is over, and the fun yeah. days, and the sleeping, and, you know, being clean, and all, all of those things are done, and I just generally, like, as a bias, whenever there is a broad sweeping feeling or push in one direction, I try to push back against it or at least see the other side. And so going in, I was like, I had boundless optimism around it. I was not going to be cynical about the experience. I was like, this is the best thing that's ever happened to me. My my wife and I, you know, candidly had, you know, tried for a little while and we weren't sure we were going to be able to conceive naturally. And it was a real blessing that it ended up happening for us. And so I I was just so taken by the fact that we were going to have a son, that this was all going to happen, that I couldn't see anything but the positive in all of it. And the second he was born, you know, I had this like really profound feeling where I got to hold him. And I had this feeling of like, look, I'm 31 years old and I've spent the last 31 years of my life, or maybe that's not realistic, the last 26 years of my life trying to understand what the meaning and purpose is of all of this, like of life, what are we doing, why am I working, what am I doing all these things for? And then suddenly I was standing there and that was looking me straight back in the face, like that meaning and purpose. And I really did feel that way. I was like, oh, this is why I'm here. Like this is the whole reason. And ever since then, it's just been this like, transformative day after day for me as a, as a human being. And, and, you know, I don't even mean that in like a grandiose sense. I really mean it very literally on a daily basis. I, for the first time in my life, feel like I really have enough. And so you said, you know, at the beginning people feel like it's this motivation. Now I have a why I'm going to go out and I'm going to, you know, go accelerate my career. I'm going to go make more money. I'm going to do it for him, you know, for this kid. And I've actually gone the other way where I'm like, I want to spend time with this child, I don't want to be working a hundred hours a week to try to like make more money and have a yacht and a private jet and this and that. I want to get to be a huge part of his life. I want to coach his little league team. like I want to be able to spend time with him when he's doing all of these things. and so it's it's interesting. Like, I think people go one of two ways with it and I've definitely gone the direction of just I want to be around. I really want to enjoy this and be able to support him. Nice.
0: I love that. That's great. Can we zoom in? So you said that you were you were looking at this baby thinking, "Yep, this is meaning and purpose. This is why I'm here." Can we unpack that a little bit? Is is it like I'm here to help this baby survive? I'm here to help this baby thrive? Like what what is what's going on in your head when you when you have that kind of feeling?
1: Yeah, I mean I am a thinker by by nature. Like I I would say I generally overthink things. And a lot of time during my like career, post-age like I don't know, maybe really post-age 20, I spent a lot of time just thinking about like my motivations. Like why am I doing this? Why am I getting up? Why am I working hard? What am I like what am I trying to do? What's my reason for being? And not like that I was feeling depression or feeling anxiety or anything. I just I wanted to know what I was striving for. And I would say I, like a lot of people I imagine our age, fell into this pattern and cycle of like, you know, I'm doing this because everyone says this is what I'm supposed to do. Like I'm supposed to try to, you know, climb the ladder in this finance job to make a bunch of money so that I can have $30 million someday or whatever the number is and so then I can, you know, have fancy wine at dinner. And and I never really stopped to think like, is that really what I want? Does that make me happy intrinsically? And if happiness is what I ultimately am striving for as a human being, why? Why am I then doing this? And when I had, you know, when I had that first interaction, when I looked him in the eye, I just felt that sensation right there of like, this is actually happiness. This is my true moment. And like the purity of that feeling and of that happiness was unrivaled in my life. And so what I realized in that moment was um, it wasn't you know, taking care of this child, you know, being there, etc. It was literally that feeling of like, this is what pure joy feels like. This is what enough feels like. I don't need a yacht or a plane or fancy wine or fancy food or restaurants or a nice house, etc. It's like this connection that I feel is all I ever really want.
0: Okay, so I'm 28. And I feel as you were describing all the stuff around like, uh, why am I here? Why am I striving? That's literally what I've been playing in my mind for the last like 12 months or so struggling to come up with an answer because i think one of the nice things about the medical career path is that you don't really have to ask yourself that Mm -hmm. question because it's like you sort of are on on the following the yellow brick road and there's always a next step and there's always a next step and it's a, a very clear path but then as soon as i stepped off that path especially as like the youtube channel and the business started making more money especially when i got to the point where i'm like damn you know i've i was intending to build streams of passive income I have streams of passive income. What's the point now? Is it to build more, more and more streams of passive income, like more financial independence? But like, to what end? Mm-hmm. I, I kind of just want to spend my time reading, writing and teaching. And that seems kind of fun. But like, I don't need that much money for that. But like, I still feel like I still still need to make all this money and blah, 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 blah. blah. And I've been really struggling to figure out like, why am I actually striving for all this kind of stuff? So I'm curious for you, like pre-kid, what were your conclusions? Um, cause we talked a little bit about what happened post kid that like suddenly it's all about this, but like, what, how were you thinking about this kind of before, before you had the kid? Yeah. And I think, I think this answer actually applies
1: to pre and post kid, you know, notwithstanding mm-hmm. all of that of like feeling like I have enough <clears throat> both pre and post kid. I had had this realization, um, that I was on, you know, I was in the finance world, right? So it's pretty similar actually to the medical world where there was this nice, neatly trodden path. From point A, where I was standing, to point B, when I was age 65, and life had gone great, and I was retiring, and I was wealthy, and um, had accomplished everything that you're supposed to accomplish as like a you know I, you know the son of an Indian immigrant. Like that would have been a good life. My mom would have been proud, is like oh he made money, he took care of us, etc. That scared the shit out of me. Excuse my language. Um, that I could like put my head down, blink, and wake up in 25 years and be like what the hell just happened? What did I just do? And did I enjoy it? No. Was I like nerding out on a daily basis, excited about what I was doing? No. And what was it going to steal my happiness and my joy along the way? Probably. When I started to deconstruct it, you know, again, it goes back to me being an overthinker. I started to deconstruct it a bit. I just generally realized that society, you think of wealth as the measuring stick of our lives. And you think of money as the measuring stick. And the reason is actually a functional one, in my opinion, which is just that it's the easiest. It's so easy to like stack yourself on the scoreboard of money. And I met way too many people that had astronomical amounts of money that I would not qualify as happy by any stretch Mm. of the imagination. Because what happened, and you know, I have a close friend who sold his company for a billion dollars recently. He made 300 million dollars. And I was asking him, like, are you materially happier now than you were when you were just running the company? And he said, not really. And the reason is because You know, he was like, look, I sold the company. This is great. I got invited to all these like cool trips. And I went on this trip and I was there and I had, you know, rented this like really nice yacht for all my friends and we were there and I got there and there was just three like bigger yachts right next to me. And so suddenly like I'm on the thing, all my friends are here coming, they all think I'm the man. And then they see these other boats and everyone's like, I wonder who owns that. I wonder what that, you know, what the story is with that one, because there's always someone that's going to have more. It's just the reality of it. And so you suddenly get into this pattern where like, it's never enough. Everyone has this tendency where, you know, like you mentioned it, you know, when, you, when, you're a, when you're a medical student or when you're trying to make it in the early years of that, you're trying to basically first like pay off your debt. Then you're trying to maybe make a few million dollars and then you want $10 million. And then you'll say like, oh, I'll be happy when I have $10 million. Then you have $10 million and you say you'll be happy when you have $30 million. The number just triples no matter what. And it's just the reality of how humans are. We get on this hedonic treadmill, and we're never happy. And so, for me, what I realized was I didn't want that. Money actually didn't make me all that happy. What made me happy was freedom. Um, I loved being able to spend time with people I cared about. I loved having the freedom to work out and to you know feel physically fit and you know experience vitality. To have headspace mentally, to be able to think about my own mental health, mindfulness, spirituality, etc. And really experience a much more comprehensive view of wealth in my own life. And so I started prioritizing that. I started trying to think about, okay, what was like my playbook going to be for building comprehensive wealth? And, you know, all of that comes out to happiness, right? Like all of it then boils down to hopefully a level of fulfillment and happiness in your own life.
0: How do you think about the difference between happiness and fulfillment or happiness and meaning or like short term versus long term happiness like weather versus climate like what's your mental model for this
1: yeah i would say my general model is that happiness is short term um and Mm -hmm. fulfillment is like the long term and i I personally think that like a lot of happy moments uh will generally lead to a lot of long-term fulfillment but i don't think you can generally experience happiness in a long-term state i think it's it's effectively felt in like three second increments is i think the science of this like a moment in time Mm. is three seconds from a scientific perspective and when you feel happiness i personally think you need to register it like i am very very good about when i feel happy i'm like oh hey i feel happy right now and i want to like mentally Mm. register it so that in my mind i know hey, I felt really happy on several occasions today. This was great because I think it's easy to just like ignore it, pass it by. Kurt Vonnegut, the famous author, has this amazing commencement speech. I think it was like 1997 at Rice. He gave a commencement speech and he said, when life is sweet, when you have those like sweet moments in life, pause and look up at the sky and say, if this isn't nice, then what is? And I always loved that because it's this like forced stop in your life when those moments are good and we it's so easy when you're a striver and when you're you know it like you or like me you're like focused on growth because you love building you love growing that's what motivates you you want to get better each day you say you love reading and writing and teaching like why a lot of that comes down to you love learning like you love being a little bit better knowing a little bit more about the world around you that's happy for you that's fulfillment for you but we often when you're like that don't stop you don't pause you don't appreciate those sweet, sweet moments in life. And so I love being able to pause, recognize those little moments in time. And I've just found it's made a dramatic impact on my daily happiness and my long-term fulfillment.
0: Yeah, anytime I come across that quote, I find that like I then do it for the rest of the day and then I forget about it. And as you were saying that, I was just thinking that like, huh, if this isn't nice, I don't know what is. You know, having this conversation, followed you on the internet for a while. I get to do this as my job. We're in the middle of a heat wave, but it's air conditioned and it's super nice. This is so good.
1: It's completely absurd. I mean, when you when you actually yeah. break down, I mean, your your life. I, I feel the same way about mine. You get to do this for a. Li- you're getting paid to have interesting conversations with smart people, not not me, but with other <laughs> smart people. Um, and that is ama- I mean, that's amazing uh, considering where you were two years ago in your life. Completely mm-hmm. remarkable. I think about it every day. You know, I'm like, I'm at home right now, right? This is my office. My kid is in the other room. He's two months old. If I was in my prior job, I would be traveling three, four days a week. I'd be working 90, 100 hours a week, and I'm making much less money than I'm making now. And so I have the freedom and the income to be able to like, spend time with the people that I really love and care most about with my parents, with my kid, with my wife. Um, and if that's not nice, I really don't know <laughs> what is.
0: Fantastic. Yeah, I was just imagining like, what my life would be like if I were still working as a doctor. Probably be in some like really 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 hot office dealing with p- patients coming in through heat stroke. and it would be fun in a way and it would be feel like camaraderie but certainly not as great as 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 what this setup is yeah
1: not um, as impactful right yeah. i mean like a doctor's role is amazingly impactful on the micro level I and mean, i think mm-hmm. that motivates tons of people and my whole mental model for life is you should find the thing that you are most uniquely well suited to create the maximum impact around and you could have created significant impact as a doctor but i think you're fantastic at you like you would have been a great doctor i'm sure no doubt right like i think you're smart you're curious you would have been a great doctor and you would have impacted <laughs> a lot of lives but you're fantastic at what you do now like you're in the top 1.01% of the world at being able to do what you do now and so the number of people you can impact positively through doing what you're doing now is probably a thousand x you know at what you could have as a doctor and so mm. from a like societal net benefit perspective matching you into what you should be doing is a huge positive because so many people are better off for having you do that i never would have encountered you if you were a doctor right you never would have had a positive net impact on my life now you are
0: yeah that's something i do i do think about a lot in the sense of like measuring impact and effective altruism and all all that kind of stuff
1: what does motivate you
0: i think motivation wise i'm just gonna think out loud here it it feels like there's like the selfish motivations and then there's like the selfless motivations shall we say the I want to have a nice life that I like, and I want to have impact on other people and help other people in some kind of way. And ideally the Venn diagram of those things is the thing that you end up doing. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I found that in doing this sort of stuff, basically teaching online and learning from cool people like you and just like making videos about that stuff. It feels really cool. And it feels like some sort of impact as well. But I guess the thing that I struggle with is like trying to tease out in a way, what is the true motivation and I don't know if this is a good way to think about it, but one way that I I try and think about it is, okay, let's say I didn't want to, I didn't need to worry about making money anymore. Let's say I had a hundred million in the bank, (laughs) which is, and and hopefully at that point, I wouldn't be trying to seek 300 million. What would I be doing with my time? And I think broadly, what I'd be doing with my time is fairly similar to what I'm currently doing with my time. I'd still be doing the podcast. I'd still be doing videos. Probably I'd make less courses or just chuck them on YouTube for free because I, I just put it on the internet for free. But beyond that, my life would be very similar to what it currently is. But why do you need a hundred million for that? Yeah, no, that's the next question it's like, I don't really need a hundred million for that. And I think I'm already at the point where I can just probably do that forever because I don't particularly have expensive tastes mm-hmm. and this works nicely. One thing that I do struggle with, like I have a bit, a, a bit of a question mark about, and I'd love to hear your perspective on this, is in the back of my mind, there's this large amount of fear of like, okay, I've sort of locked, lucked into this position right now. Business is going well. YouTube channel is going well. You know, peaks and troughs, like with any kind of social media type thing. And, but it's, it, it almost feels like, I guess, being an athlete, and I guess you'd have experience of this, where you know you've got a few years in the limelight to really make hay while the sun shines. And then you're going to be hung out to dry. You're going to become a has-been. And all those fears are just like in my mind of like, uh, is this a sustainable career for the long term? And especially when I have a family and kids and and stuff, then will I, will I regret the way that I spent my time in my youth? And will I regret not going for 10 million or 30 million and instead be comfortable with like less than that? Any, any thoughts on this? So many. (laughs) Look,
1: I mean, I think this is first off, it's like, it's a combination of like imposter syndrome with this like scarcity bias that I think we all have when you first make it where you're like terribly Mm -hmm. scared of being broke and, mm, you know, being yeah. <laughs> being back to, like, zero. And for whatever reason, rich people feel this a lot, and it's the weirdest thing in the world, just psychologically, that you, it, it's almost, like, functionally very difficult. Like, you have skills, there are things you can do, you'll be, you'll be fine. But we all experience this and have that type of fear. And look, I mean, I've felt that a lot. I went from, like, a normal finance track and, like, very stable, etc., to doing something entrepreneurial and, you know, on my own and that doesn't have a pattern that I can match it to or a precedent that's set around it. You know, my general bias on these things is that you'll figure it out and you have incredible energy around what you're doing. And when you have incredible energy and motivation around what you're doing intrinsically, there is a path that opens up that you cannot ever predict. And trying to predict it is actually silly. Like if, if a year ago, you could have predicted where you are today, I would call BS. And I think that applies, you know, you're 28. I would guess at like every point over the last eight years, if you had tried to predict where you were two, three years out in advance, you would have been wrong. And I think that applies to today. I actually don't know if you're still going to be doing this in two or three years, but I do know you're going to be fine and you're going to be, like, figured out something really cool that you're going to be working on and doing. And, you know, the last piece, like, more tactically that I think about a lot is I think about income and wealth separately. And so I think that what you really want, an ideal setup from a life perspective, is that you have income-generating activities, and then you have wealth-generating activities. And mm-hmm. the way I generally think about it is that you take your income-generating activities, you want those to obviously like cover your expenses, et cetera. As soon as all of that is covered, you're taking all of that income and deploying it into wealth-generating activities. And if you set up a simple set of systems in that way, it's very difficult to like ever be truly in trouble. And if you're, especially during a period where you're earning at a high level, not all of a sudden having your like you know your lifestyle creep up to the point where there's no net excess at the end of the day from the income generating is the way to make sure that you're always fine. I mean, I've just like personally, I've always had these fears. And so I've personally built like a little personal model of my life of how I'm thinking about taking like excess that's being generated and deploying it into things that I consider wealth generating, investing, you know, my fund that I have, all things like that, and make sure that like, look, If I die or if I can't work and we have literally zero income, how long can we coast on what we have for? And when you get to it, like, I mean, my general goal is to, like, get to the point over the next couple of years where it's, like, forever. You know, like we can can make do with our current lifestyle forever. And I think that's an amazing place of, like, I call it default alive. It's like um, Paul Graham has an essay on this. But getting to the point where you feel like you're default alive from a personal finance standpoint is a massive mental unlock.
0: Alrighty, let's do a little interlude. Now I want to tell you about one of my favorite books, which is Steal Like an Artist by Austin Cleon. Austin Cleon's books have like profoundly changed the trajectory of my life. Show Your Work in particular is the book that first encouraged me to start my own blog way back in 2016. But Steal Like an Artist is really good. Somehow hit the New York Times bestseller list with this book that's like actually mostly a collection of illustrations, but like genuinely it's sick. And it's great for, you know, creatives and people struggling with originality and stuff. I would recommend reading the book. It's actually not very long. It doesn't take very long to read. But if you want another way of engaging with the ideas in the book, then you might like to check out Shortform, who are very kindly sponsoring this episode. If you haven't heard by now, Short Form is the world's best service that summarizes popular nonfiction books, but it's way more than just book summaries. So for each book, they have a one pager that summarizes the book in a single page. They also have detailed chapter by chapter outlines. And so for a book like Steel Like an Artist, where there's not a lot of text in the book, the Short Form summary adds to and builds on the ideas of Austin Kleon himself. Then in between some of the chapters, they've got these interactive exercises, which help you engage with the topic a little bit more. And if the author says anything particularly controversial, then Short Form will often flag up that, hey, this is a thing that might be potentially fake news lol here is another author and what they thought about the thing and how they disagreed with author a and so it's quite nice as a way of getting a balanced viewpoint about the books that we read now there's two main ways that I use short form in my life the first one is that if I'm short on time and if I've got a book recommendation and I'm not 100% sold on whether I want to read the book directly I'll often look at the short form summary of the book and be like you know are these ideas interesting enough that I will actually want to read the book itself and usually I have about a 50% hit rate with this I tend to read about 50% of the books that I read the summaries of and don't read 50% of the books that I read the summaries of, which because I have a never ending to read list, this is actually really helpful. And secondly, short form is good as a way of revisiting ideas from books I've already read. So if I'm doing book research for my own book or if I'm making a video or if I'm just trying to revisit the ideas because I think they'd be particularly relevant to my life, then it's often way easier for me to read the short form summary of the book than it is just reread the whole book. Anyway, if any of that sounds up your street and you would also like to get access to the world's best book summaries, then head over to shortform.com forward slash deep dive. And that will give you 20% off the annual premium subscription so thank you very much short form for sponsoring this episode so okay so income income versus wealth take income generating activities and use those to cover your expenses and then transition for transfer basically everything else into wealth generating activities you said the phrase set up simple systems can we zoom in on that like what sort of simple systems do you have for this sort of thing
1: so i mean the first one i mentioned is like create a model of your of your finances I, i'm a huge believer in just being able to like look at things and visualize them for peace of mind and like if you're like me mm. I think most people our age are probably like this, where you have this level of fear and like scarcity around what your life is gonna look like. And if everything goes to crap, you know, like right now, say we're in a recession and I lose my job, mm. or, you know, we're in the creator economy, quote unquote, like if people pull back spend and advertisers pull back and all of this, you know, people stop spending money on courses, et cetera, like, will I be okay? And I think visualizing it, be able to look at it and pull on all the different levers is a great starting point. That's one one general system. The other way I do it is honestly, like I sketch things out. like. I carry around this this notebook with me, and I will just draw, like, I'll draw that system. Like, I'll, I'll draw a circle, income generating, and I'll write all the different things that are levers within it. And then I'll show, like, okay, here's my expenses coming out, here's where the rest is going, and I'll draw on all of the wealth generating activities. And yeah, I learned that from, like, Walt Disney had this whole thing of, like, if you're having trouble with any concept, just draw it out. And even if it's a crappy looking drawing, it really helps you cement it and understand the idea and have clarity around it. So I will do that frequently. I'll just like sketch things out when I feel that way. But that's that'd be probably the two big ones that I would think about from a system standpoint. I I guess like the last thing I would say is just sit down and think about what you're like. If you were going to have three wealth generating activities and you were only allowed to have three and like that can be You know, one should definitely be a brokerage account, like, you know, just basic investing. And the other two can be of your choosing. But you'd never want to get into a point where you're, like, you know, in 30 different things. Like, there's just no reason for the complexity. Everyone, uh, there's been this, like, general trend towards almost like status flexing on all of the different alternative investment classes that you're invested in. You know, you're like, oh, well, I, you know, invest in masterclass. I have art. I invest in real estate through, you know, Fundrise or Lex or whatever all of these platforms are and I invest in this. And you literally have like $10,000 spread across 15 different asset classes that is like, you're much better off just putting all of that in S&P 500 or like into a broad index fund that charges you nothing because none of those are like durably generating above market returns over the long run. I just, I don't really believe it. Even startups, angel investing, I think is more about learning than it is about generating returns for the most part. Mm -hmm. So all of these things, I think like complexity is just a demon that, that most people run into along the way. And like keeping your life super simple. I mean, I have steadily learned this lesson the hard way where I like, we'll go down the rabbit hole on something that I think is going to be a huge game changer. I'll lose money on it and then be like, man, I should have just put that into my brokerage account. I would have been much better yeah. off.
0: <laughs> I know what you mean. We've been like within within this business as well. We've definitely suffered from a complexity creep of like, oh, as you grow bigger, suddenly there's more opportunities. Do that and that and that and products there, products there, of course there, of course there, of course there, content here. And it's just like actually focusing on the simple stuff of like what's the bread and butter and just yeah. do that and do it well and do the fundamentals well, then that's probably way better than, Trying to be scatterbrained about, all yeah, this and you have
1: stuff. an idea every day. Like you're a smart guy, you're ambitious. You just have interesting mm-hmm. ideas every day, and you write them down, and then people want to go execute against them. And the reality is that like Warren Buffett had this thing of like like a list, like a prioritization list. And the basic idea is like write down twenty things that are important to you, like the twenty priorities for your life. Cross ten of them off the list. So you're left with ten things that really, really matter. Then cross seven off the list. And you're left with the three things that truly, truly matter. And if anything comes up that is something that's not on those three, you just say no. And it, you know, it gives you like a very easy way to cut through the noise around things. And it sounds crazy and draconian, but it really does work. Because what ends up happening is when you say yes and you take on all those other things, Now I'm super busy and my bandwidth and my headspace is strapped. And so then when the like really juicy opportunity comes along, I I can't take it because I'm so swamped or I'm just like, I don't even have the headspace to think about that. I'm not, I'm just going to say no, because I can't. And that's a terrible thing, because now you're missing the high upside stuff because you took on the, you know, random one-off singles.
0: Yeah, we, we had a bit of a tangent. We had a 2 hour long session with a marketing agency earlier today, you know, run by some people that we're friends with. And we were just sort of going through the business and figuring out like, what are the main levers and thinking like, oh, for courses, do we want sales team, A-B testing pages and stuff? And what they were saying is like, hang on, Let's go back to basics. Mm. What's your biggest organic channel? Answer, the YouTube channel. Everything else is way, 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 way smaller than that. And they're like, how much effort are you putting into the YouTube channel compared to the other stuff? Mm. I was like, oh, not very much. And they were like, yeah, we probably want to just double down on the YouTube channel. Just like fo- focus on the basic big thing and don't worry too much about all of the other little things that we could and pro- should be doing. And that's the thing, I guess, in the creator economy. And I guess people with normal jobs have this as well, where there's this long list of things that you know you probably should do i probably should be on tiktok probably should be doing instagram reels probably should be doing linkedin posts gary v says linkedin and tiktok are big these days probably should be doing twitter threads like you do and also making chat videos for the main Mm -hmm. channel also doing the podcast and there's just ends up being this long list of options and actually having the, I guess, discipline, but also like the, I think the scarcity mindset feeds into this because in my mind, I'm thinking, shit, TikTok is where everyone's going to beat next year. No one's going to be on YouTube. I'm going to start making TikTok content. Um, and we just sort of get into this scattergunned kind of approach for the sake of trying to build a safety net. But actually it's probably counterproductive in actually building that safety net.
1: Yeah. it's I mean, it's like a constant challenge, right? There's There's always going to be some new platform, some new thing you know, some new opportunity that you're missing out on. That feeling of FOMO, I would say in general, the ability to feel and not take action against FOMO is like a superpower of some of the highest performers in the world. Like that ability to remain focused and ignore the noise and just say like, this is what I'm going to do well. It's like the Bruce Lee line of like, I don't fear the man that has 10,000 kicks. I fear the man that has one kick and has practiced it 10,000 times. I think that that's like, generally an amazing way to think about life and and look i say all these things all of them are things i struggle with like i can quote this stuff till kingdom come but when some new thing comes up i'm still going to be like ah should i be doing that i don't know it's like causing me a bunch of tension to even think about it and you say tiktok you say all these things i'm like oh man i'm not doing any of this i'm looking at your youtube channel right now i'm like man this guy kills it on youtube i have zero youtube do i need to be doing this um (laughs) so it uh you look i i I don't think there's any way around this stuff, but I do tend to think that being like a king of one thing versus a jack of all trades is
0: the right approach long-term. Yeah, I do some like, I, I have the same thing when I look at your Twitter account. I'm like, oh man, zero to 500k in like a year. And you've got the whole angel investing thing off and you built a fund. Maybe I should build a fund. Someone told me I should make a rolling fund, but like, I don't know anything about it. That feels a lot of work. I angel invested in a in a, in a dozen companies or so, and I kind of semi-regret it because they message me, ask asking for things, and I spend I take years to reply to WhatsApp messages, and then mm-hmm. I feel bad that I'm not able to actually offer the offer them decent value, and then, oh, and then I read Tim Ferriss' blog post about why he stopped angel investing, and I'm like, you know what? Maybe I should just like, I don't know, stop, I, even though I, it's it's not even that many, at least like compared to you and and, and other people.
1: Yeah, I mean, the um, more things you take on, our our heads only have so much room in them to like take things on and to to actually pursue with any degree of energy or or ferocity. And you're wired the same way as me, where like, you're much better off having two things that you can pursue with all of your might and energy than you are with a 100 that you're kind of like, eh, 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 you know, put- yeah. putzing around. <laughs> and you just need to figure out what those couple of things, I mean, you, you know it, you're, you're crushing it, you're doing great. Uh, but I think for a lot of people to take that message away, it's just like, don't try to be everything to everyone. Like, you're just not, you know, and honestly, it's the same of, like, your audience. There are going to be people that don't like the things you're putting out. There are going to be, you know, if you're trying to make it as a creator, there are going to be people that have negative feedback. There are going to be people that don't like your stuff. That's fine. I actually, like, you know, like, I, I write a lot of things that are kind of general self-improvement and growth and decision-making. And I get plenty of shit from people that are like, oh, you know... This is just the same self-help thing or whatever, like people want to say. And my whole thing is like, don't read it. If it's not for you and you don't get value from it and it doesn't inspire you or make you feel better or make you feel a little smarter, don't read it. Like I'm not asking you to love everything I put out there. That's totally fine. I totally acknowledge it's not for everyone. But if it helps a few people along the way, man, that makes me feel pretty good. So that's, I mean, just generally how I'm thinking about it.
0: Just on, so I was was gonna ask you a question on that front. Your Twitter threads always seem to go viral. There was one you did a few months ago now, a few weeks ago, uh, being like, I've just had a kid, here are 30 lessons or something I would teach my kid. And I was like, I read the whole thing. I was like, this is sick. And I saw all the, you know, likes and retweets and stuff. And I was like, this is sick. And then I looked at the quote tweets. <laughs> and there was just some people being like, oh my God, this guy's the worst thing. And I was like, what What the hell? <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> advice my kid, man. And people being like, oh my God, this guy needs to go die in a fire and stuff. I was like, how... How do you how do you react to that sort of thing when you're literally like here are some lessons I teach my kid yeah. and people are telling you to like go die in a fire this
1: goes back I didn't read the go die in a fire one but that that's new I like <laughs> that one yeah I mean like look, look that goes back to the point I made at the beginning there's this weird cynicism around parenthood and that was actually my first experience with it was I posted this thing that I was like I you know I was like almost tearing up writing that because I was thinking about and reflecting on my own life and things my parents taught me and my grandfather passed away and I you know I was writing it it was very emotional for me to write I put it out and it. Did did, you know, like 95% of the response, 99% probably realistically was extremely positive and a lot of people found value in it. But there's that, you know, group, 5%, 1%, whatever it is, that got really angry that I thought that I could teach my kids something. Like they they were like, well, all you're going to learn about is like poop on your face and, you know, throw up in the middle of the night and crying all night. And, you know, what an idiot that he thinks he can, you know, teach his kids that he's in for a hard lesson, whatever, all of that stuff. And I was just like, man, what a weird way to live life like you're just gonna live life thinking that you're a passenger and that everything is just gonna happen to you and you can't create or change or be the like driver of your own life I feel like an empathy towards that I think I forget whether it was Gary Vee I think it was Gary Vee that said this that when he sees haters and that guy has a lot of haters when he sees haters his first reaction is to feel empathy for the person of you know you're like if you are the type of person that writes I hope you go die in a fire on Twitter when someone has put something out Um, you're probably not a very happy person and there's probably something in your life that is causing some level of tension or sadness or depression or whatever it is that is leading to you writing that. And so it's actually better rather than getting angry, rather than being upset, to feel empathy for that person to hope that they can find happiness and peace in a way that they clearly aren't at the moment. The other thing Mm -hmm. I would say is like, Joe Rogan was just on the Lex Fridman podcast and talked about this. You know, that guy has obviously a lot of haters out there for some good reasons. And he says he just doesn't look at it like entirely, you know, and, and it's like an unspoken rule with his wife that she doesn't bring it up to him. And he just will not look, won't read any of those things, won't engage. My policy in general is the second one person sends like a, bad faith you know negative response to me i'll just mute them and i don't block anyone really because it sort of like gives them a win that they can be like oh i got under his skin but if you mute them then i never have to see the thing you know never have to see their negativity again so that tends to be my general policy but look i mean when you're growing and doing things and you know putting yourself in the arena there's always going to be someone on the sidelines that wants to throw a rock at you it's just the reality of it and for all the good that it's brought to my life I'm fine, kind of taking a few of those stones to the head along the way.
0: This is one of the one of the commonest fears that I come across when people want to start YouTube channels or start putting themselves out there in any kind of capacity. It's this worry of, what will I do about the haters? I'm not I'm not sure I can take it, kind of thing. What was your approach to this, like in the early days when you didn't have such a large following? And yeah, how how did, how did you go about sort of getting to this fairly zen place where you're like, yeah, I'll take I'll I'll take it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I say I'm at this end place. Just to qualify it, I say I'm at this end place, it still bugs me. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. I, I still will see it the first time before I'm able to mute someone and it'll bum me out. Cause I'm like, man, I'm trying to put out positive things. Like people that know me, I'm a pretty nice guy. Like I, you know, my friends, I think like me and I'm generally pleasant to be around. I'm like very positive. Um, and I hope that comes across on Twitter. Like I don't fight people back on Twitter when they say things to me. I normally will be like, oh, sorry, you didn't like it. Or, you know, sometimes I'll message people and just say like, Hey, this was, you know, in good faith. I wasn't trying to upset anyone, whatever. In the early days on Twitter, I was putting out extremely like positive educational content. And so I would say I didn't really encounter any haters until I was at about 25 or so thousand followers, at which point I started getting it from like, you know, crypto Twitter, like anonymous, um, accounts where there's no ramifications to talking crap when you're, you know, an anonymous account and you're, and you're hidden there. And so honestly, what I would do is I would message people. And what I generally found, like someone would send something really mean and I would message them and say like, Hey, sorry that whatever I did upset you was, you know, generally trying to write it in good faith, whatever. I would send a nice message. And like 99% of the time they would come back and be like, Oh, I'm sorry. I'll delete it. Like you know, when when you actually confront someone with, um, or like apologize, like, hey, that wasn't my intention. No one really likes to like fight face to face. They just assume that you're not going to react because you're like a big account and you're not going to see it or you're not going to read it Mm -hmm. and that there's no ramifications to their actions. And so when you actually confront someone, generally most people actually back down and are fine. I would say that was generally my approach in the early days. And again, it's like, When you're doing something, when you're in the arena, it's not like never worry about the opinions of the people that are on the sidelines. That's just my general bias. It's like there's plenty of people on the sidelines that are too afraid to put themselves out there. You should take a lot of pride in being willing to put yourself out there because it's scary, it's vulnerable, it's lonely. Mm -hmm. And when
0: you do that, you should stop taking advice from people that are on the sidelines. How do you, while we're on this topic, how do you balance in, in terms of the stuff that you put out there, the sense of, I want to share this versus I think this will perform well? Very difficult. The platforms
1: and the algorithms and your emotions always lead you towards wanting to do the thing that performs well. I've talked to many YouTubers that feel this way, that it's like, I just basically repurpose my top videos over and over again in new formats because I know they'll do really well and that the algorithm will do it. And I'm so addicted mm-hmm. to the like, you know, dopamine of this many views or whatever it is yep. that I just keep doing it over and over again. And not just the dopamine at that point, the uh, economics of it. Twitter's a little different. There's no embedded monetization. This isn't like, Twitter. My like tw- writing on Twitter is not how I make money. Um, indirectly, sure, it you know leads to all of the other business things I do, but not directly. I try to balance in general. You know, like that's not to say that I never write the thing that I think is just going to perform well. There are certain topic areas for me that I know with a pretty high degree of certainty are things that resonate with people that they'll find interesting. I would say now I'm in the place where like four out of five things that I post are things that I am just super interested in and wanting to write about and think about.
0: Mm.
1: I will always, always think about what is the opening tweet to this that will grab the most people and that will perform well. So I even if I'm writing something that like I think is a more niche esoteric topic, I'll always try to have a hook, you know, basically like the equivalent of a, you know, a headline or a thumbnail on YouTube that will grab people. And the pushback against that is like, "Oh, clickbait headline." And my answer is like, "Yeah, clickbait headline. Like I'm trying to get people to read this. I'm not trying to have no one read it. And if that's what it takes to get people to see the thing that I'm very proud of that I put out, then yeah, I'm going to do a clickbait headline and people are going to click on it. There's going to be some people that get mad along the way. That's just how these things work. And so, I I mean, I would say I'm never putting anything out that I'm not proud of and that I don't think will benefit some people. But I'm always trying to make sure that it gets seen because at the end of the day, that's the game we're playing is like, I get get no points for putting out something that is amazingly well-written and so thoughtful and interesting that 50 people see. No points. And like, am I going to feel proud of that? That I wrote it, maybe, but that no one saw it. It's like, what was the impact that that had on the world? So, you know, like, look, I I posted this thing this weekend of razors, like the most interesting razors, like kind of decision-making heuristics. It was the most viral thing I've ever put out. I think it's like at 95,000 likes, it did 25 million impressions or something like that. It was... I don't know, 75% stuff that I've already posted in the past that I was able to like repackage into something that had a much better hook, tightened it up, like pulled it all together in a more consistent storyline. But it wasn't all like brand new content that I hadn't posted in the past. It was like super efficient from a time ROI perspective, how I put it out. And so I think about this stuff a lot. I would say I'm generally probably not as strategic as like I think there are tacticians about this thing that like look at the analytics on every word and how they post different hooks. I'm not like that. I'm more inspiration-driven. I never create content in advance. I mean, I write things that morning and then post them. Like I post once a week on Twitter largely from a thread perspective and I write it that morning. I'm not like, I don't have a repository of things that I'm gonna post in the future. So I can go both ways on it. That's generally how I've thought about it though in the past.
0: We're just gonna take a quick break from the podcast to introduce the sponsor of this episode, which is very excitingly, Notion. If you watch any of my YouTube videos, you have heard me talk about Notion for I think over three years now. If you've been living under a rock and you haven't heard about Notion by now, it is this sort of all-in-one collaborative productivity tool that you can use either personally or with a team. And it combines note-taking, it combines like a personal wiki, it combines tables and databases and tasks and calendars. And it's basically an all-in-one tool for organizing almost anything in your personal life or in your work life. I started using Notion in like 2019 to organize like all the stuff I was doing in my medical life and my teaching and then my YouTube channel. And now with our team of around 20 people, we are basically all of us operate asynchronously using various Notion databases and Notion templates and so much, so much stuff of our life is just revolves and lives inside Notion. And it's just been an incredible tool for helping us stay on the same page and stay productive as a remote and asynchronous team of 20 people. Now, not all work collaboration tools are created equal, obviously, some of them help you organize your company's information, but there's others that help you organize just projects and tasks. The nice thing about Notion is that it actually does both and it's all in one tool, which makes it super easy to use. And it's beautifully designed, which makes people actually want to use it rather than kind of shy away from wanting to use it because it's just actually so well, well put together. So whether you're a startup trying to build a team like I am, or if you just wanna organize your personal productivity or maybe both and just want to organize everything about your life then definitely check out notion and if you use the link in the video description or in the show notes then you will get some kind of promotion and they'll know that we sent you and you'd be supporting the podcast as well so thank you so much notion for sponsoring this episode yeah the the balance that every about well, me and everyone else i know struggles with as well i was chatting to another youtube youtuber friend about this over dinner last night and i was saying that like you know my my dream youtube channel involves one where i just make videos about whatever i find interesting and this friend was pushing back and saying, why not put the esoteric stuff on a second channel and put the stuff that you know is going to perform well on the main channel? Because ultimately the main channel is the nucleus of your business. And you know that, and you kind of know what's going to perform well on the main channel. is going to be finance or productivity or whatever. Mm-hmm. But if you want to take a foray into like health and relationships, which is kind of outside of your niche, outside of your niche, go second channel. So now you're still posting it. You're just posting it on a different platform. And there was something about that was like, oh, that feels like really good advice. But there's something about it that feels a bit like, uh, like I'm Faith. kind of giving something up by yeah. even thinking about the different platforms for yeah. like performance reasons and stuff.
1: Yeah, I've rejected this recently. I mean, I talked about the fatherhood stuff and the content I've been posting there. I would say from the early days, my my maybe this will help you or you'll have some ideas that come from this. From the very early days, my realization around the longevity of Twitter, newsletter, podcast, anything I did was that content was eventually going to be automated. Like AI is going to replace all written content, video content. Like it's just as AIs get better and better, people are going to be able to produce all the things I write via AI. There's probably already an AI that will put things into Naval's voice and like write yeah. a Naval <laughs> thread without him writing yeah. it. So that the content will already exist. What you can't really automate or AI, at least in the near term, is personality and the feeling of connection and affinity that you can build with someone. And so my perspective from the early days was I want to build a personality and a connection with my audience, a community with my audience, that they just care about the things that I am finding interesting. And so that has manifested itself in a few ways. One, My newsletter, um, I don't have like a specific thing I write about. I write about things that are capturing my interest that I find interesting that I'm learning at any point in time. And my newsletter is really a journey of things that I'm learning along the way. My Friday newsletter Mm -hmm. in particular is like five things that I found interesting during the week that I'm going to be sharing, similar to like what Tim Ferriss did and I think did a really good job of. It's like the five bullet Friday idea. I'm going to share interesting things that I'm learning on the journey. Similarly, with Twitter, recently it's manifested itself in, like, I'm sharing more content on fatherhood, on parenting, on my, like, journey around wealth and what wealth means to me and what enough means to me. Recently, I've done a lot around, like, health and fitness, something totally off the path of, like, normally I write about growth and productivity and, you know, self-improvement, etc. And, well, I was like, well self, you know, self-improvement, health and fitness is a huge part of that to me. And I really care about physical training. I really care about recovery stuff. I like, and so I started posting, you know, things about my like workout routine or mobility or runs that I'm doing. And it resonates with some portion of my people and they're building this level of connection with me in a different way. And Mm. that has been my perspective is like, I'm just going to share the things that I'm getting excited about. If people aren't excited about those, that's fine. I'm not the guy for them. But if I can build that like depth of connection with a smaller subgroup of the people that do follow me, where they want everything, like anything I put out, they're like, "Oh, I got to be going and doing that running workout, or I got to go build that habit that Silas building." That's cool, and that's what I really want long term, and that's what I think is durable long term.
0: Yeah, I think I've I've kind of landed at the same 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 conclusion that yeah, what is the YouTube channel I would want Tim Ferriss to have? Yeah, well, that's what, what he is. Good. Yeah. yeah, every few days he just makes a video about whatever's on his mind and I couldn't really care less, I just, I'm just, interested. i just interested, I like the thing. To what extent do you think this model of I will share things I care about is a luxury once you get big already versus a strategy for even when you're quite smaller and trying to break into the Twitter thread Boy sphere or the productivity YouTuber sphere or whatever other creator sphere people want to go into?
1: I think it is a luxury. I could say otherwise. I don't think I would be being intellectually honest if I said otherwise. I think it's really challenging. I mean, like, I think you can do it at a micro level. I think there's plenty of people who do it at like a sub 1000 level, where you have like basically your friends and friends of friends who find your life very interesting and the things you're doing and pursuing are interesting. And so you're getting this like micro creator connection of someone curating really interesting ideas or insights for you. I think it's probably really hard to like grow a durable presence as that guy because there's so I mean like at the macro level Tim Ferriss is probably the biggest in the world of like he's gonna go learn and do interesting things and you're gonna be along for the journey and he's gonna maybe write books about it or do podcasts about it like that's what he is and so you're not gonna like beat him as you're trying to come up along the way I mean look my like goal if you were to define what I'm trying to build like I want to be you know, the modern day or like, you know, younger and maybe slightly less quirky version of like, Tim Ferriss, James Clear, Shane Parrish, like some hybrid of these people yeah. that I really admire and have read and created, you know, and and created around. That's what I kind of like doing. Like I'm sort of, you know, Shane Parrish has the like intellectual angle. I love that. I learn a lot from that. Mm-hmm. Tim Ferris yeah. has always had the body angle. I love that stuff. Passionate about it. You know, James Clear with all of his habit building, self-improvement, super passionate about that. And I sort of feel like where I am is kind of like this hybrid of those different personalities and building a, you know, a life and a, and a universe that's similar to what those guys have done and kind of standing on the shoulders of those giants a bit is really my vision for it. Like I want to write a book. I want to like, you know, go create more. I want to speak more, do those kind of things. And that's, I mean, that's my vision for it now.
0: It's interesting you say those names. So that's almost identical to what my vision for my stuff is, but like subtly different. So my sort of, if I could amalgamate like a future kind of playbook career out of what people are doing, it's Tim Ferriss, for the same reason as you. Like, uh, actually, it's, it's not really for the body reason. It's more like longevity of career mm-hmm. reason and how he just seems to post stuff that he cares about. And like, he, you know, crypto does well on his podcast. But after a few episodes, he's like, oh, I don't care about crypto anymore. Let mm-hmm. me just post about some like random, random thing. He seems to just follow his own interests. I would add Cal Newport to the list mm-hmm. because I really vibe with the whole like academic angle of mm-hmm. like, he's a tenured professor and he teaches real students in real life, which seems fun and mm-hmm. does the reading of the books and stuff on the side. And I'd probably go with Derek Sivers or Austin Kleon on the list because I like how they don't take themselves too seriously. And I think a lot of the other people in this sphere are a bit too serious. And I want to be the sort of lighthearted, toilet jokes, Harry Potter references, that kind of version of this, which is basically my personality just like dialed up a little bit.
1: I love that. I think it's so interesting. Like I just, I'm, I'm learning a lot from just listening to you talk about these things and the way that you're pursuing it. But I think it's so interesting to just try to like archetype that way a little bit and figure out, you know, what is your vision? And, and real, reality is you're going to build your own version of all of these things yeah. and <laughs> a different perspective and a different way that you grab people. And it's like I said, right? Like Tim Ferris, part of what has allowed him to do all of what he's done is that he was making smart investments along the way that he was taking, you know, when, when you make the like... million a year from a big book that you're eventually going to do or whatever it is you're going to do where you're going to have one big thing. It's like, what do you do with that? You know, and how are you using that to establish yourself for the long term so that you can continue to do the interesting things that make you unique and that make you stand out for people long term? I mean, clearly you've done that, right? Like you have a massive following on YouTube, people clearly care about the things that you're talking about and doing. And that's something to be super proud of. But I think that the focus on longevity and the focus on the durability of it, that's what's going to allow you to stand out. Because I, I just think most people aren't thinking about that. They're like, "Oh, this is cool. Let me like, you know, post more shirtless pics on Instagram, or whatever it is." <laughs> that allow me to grab people for now, but there's always going to be someone hotter. There's always going to be someone richer. There's all, you know, like all of those things are fleeting. But this connection and like intellectual connection that you can have with your community, I, I think that is really durable. That's why we still love Tim Ferris. Is like, "You and I sitting yeah. here 20 <laughs> or whatever, 15 years after 4-hour work week came out." That's mm. why we still love him and we'll consume anything that he puts out.
0: I've been thinking recently around you know, when people ask, oh, how did how did your YouTube channel succeed amongst all the others and stuff? And it's it's easy to connect dots and there's obviously survivorship bias. So all of those caveats aside, one thing that I was sort of thinking from basically day one is what does the five-year longevity version, what does the 10-year longevity version of this look like? And I knew immediately, there's like, okay, I'm making content for medical students. That's got a sell-by date for as long as I'm a medical student. We need to we need to do some reinventing mm-hmm. like very soon before, just to, to try and stay ahead of things. And most other creators who I know do like the ones who are huge think in those terms, and sort of like I want to do this for the next like ten plus years. The ones who are less huge tend not to have gotten to that level of thinking just yet. And I think secondly, like uh, one well, one thing I've been thinking a lot about is this question of like what is the infinite game that I'm trying to play here? What is the thing that I'm doing just for the sake of doing it? And the way I get to that is is asking that question of like you know if I won if I won the Euro Millions and I had 100 million in the bank, like what would I be doing? Okay, that's my infinite game. I want to spend my time reading, writing, learning, teaching cool once you're playing your infinite game the only objective is to continue playing and then things like oh what if we double down and like triple the size of the team and go big it's like but like that has a high risk because now it increases our cost significantly and it's not any it's like i'm still playing my infinite game it's just like uh, it's in a way it it becomes asymmetrical downside Mm -hmm. trying to go too big once you're already at your point where you're like spending your time doing the things you care about and like haven't having a nice life
1: i've wrestled with a lot of very similar things i think one thing that durable creators with long-term longevity will do and it's something that i would encourage everyone to think about as they're scaling is scale business outside of your creator business so Mm. use the creator business to build other businesses that sit alongside it and maybe they're you know tangentially related to the creator side of it but there are other, you know, there, there are other pillars of business that are like real enterprise value or at least real income streams that are just outside of like I'm earning money on YouTube or I'm earning money from a newsletter. I have like an agency business that I created and started, which I don't really talk about or write about, but it's a pretty big business now and it's very little time from 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 my perspective. And, you know, I have a couple people that work for me. It's very tight and it's an example of exactly what you said if I wanted to spend, if I wanted to ramp that up, so let's, you know, let's say for, for even numbers, let's say it's a hundred grand a month. If I wanted to ramp that up to 200, what would that require? Well, if that requires me forexing the amount of time and mental, you know, and headspace that I have to spend on that, that's really not worth it to me. Like, you know, I would bring home way more money. Great. Like I'd be wealthier, whatever it would mean. But if it means that I have to spend that much more time on it, that's actually not a trade I want to make. And so I'd rather keep it small and keep it at the scale that it's at and not have to go spend all that extra time on it in order to do it. And that is something that I think is a rewiring of your brain. Because when you're coming from a traditional mindset, your mindset is like more, more, more. I got to get every single dollar And my, I'm wired this way. I have like an immigrant mindset around this from, you know, from mm-hmm. my parents. It's like, I got to get everything I can get right now. You know, like my dad is a tenured professor. That was like the ultimate income stream job. It's like, it wasn't a wealth creation job. It was a income. And my wiring by nature was to like say, oh, someone's willing to give me $1,000 or something. Let me go do that thing because I need to collect every dollar I can get. But that's actually the wrong mindset for the long term because what I really want to do is like, well, right now this is a great setup. I don't have to spend a ton of time on it. Generates a bunch of cash flow. I can walk into the other room after this, play with my kid for an hour, take him for a walk. You know, I can go for walks in between calls and clear my head, make me more creative. All of those things are massively valuable to my life, just not in the way of money.
0: Yeah, well, I was having a conversation with another YouTuber friend last week, kind of talking about this idea of like, you know, people say that if you're not growing, you're dying, and it's like, in a, in a way, that very oversimplified model it can cause you to make a bunch of decisions that you n- don't necessarily want to make. Uh, but what this friend said was that growth doesn't doesn't just have to be in terms of revenue. Growth can, in fact, be in terms of it requiring less time from you. And there was just something about that framing of it that made me think, oh, hello. Yeah, if I could sustain the same kind of revenue and profit and have to spend less time doing stuff I don't want to do, then actually we're winning. And I would, I would take that over like doubling our revenues at the expense of having to spend more time thinking about stuff I don't necessarily want to do anyway.
1: The best business decision and the biggest mental unlock I've ever made was canceling a $10,000 a month client in my agency business. Um, and that was like, a year ago, if you told me that I was going to ever do something like that, I would have just told you to shut up. Cause that sounded crazy to me. Like you're going to turn off something that, you know, is like a great hourly rate. Like I was probably spending, I don't know, 10 hours a month with that client. It was like an incredible hourly rate by any stretch, but it was causing me so much stress. And I was like, it just wasn't worth it. And it was taking mm-hmm. me away from a bunch of other things. And I, so I ended the contract and my life has been like so much better since I did that. And I'm making less money on a monthly basis because I removed it. It ended up allowing me to go and capitalize on a few other opportunities that I know are going to make me like probably 10x as much in the long run. Um, And it freed up my mind. Like during that 10 hours, now I can write, Creatively, I can read more. I can spend more time with my son, help my wife around the house. Like it just has made my life better doing that. And it was a huge mental barrier for me to actually do that. And now I feel like really liberated from the, from the actual experience of doing it to be able to think in that way more comprehensively about time, about value, about you know, what your hourly rate is, where you'll actually want to take something on. And it really means, I mean, it changes a lot when you first do that.
0: Yeah, I actually had a a similar moment yesterday. Then this was the first time I've made a decision like this, where I was just about to record a sponsor plug for one of the YouTube videos, and they were paying 15 grand. Yeah. And it was a product that I don't use. And I was like, oh, I could spend five minutes downloading this and just doing the thing, and it would just take five minutes. And five minutes of my time for 15 grand is a pretty solid hourly rate. But then I w- there, there was something about it that felt really off. And I was like, no, this is a point where I have to make a decision. So I sent a message to the agency being like, sorry guys, we're not, we're not gonna do this deal because I do not use the product. I'll try it out in the next few months. And if I end up using it at some point, we can do a deal at some point, but sorry, can we disappoint them and cancel the deal? And that suddenly felt like a huge weight off my shoulders. And now that feels like in a way, well, in, in law, once you have precedent for a thing, then you tend to kind of continue doing the thing. So now I have precedent that I will genuinely only do sponsor plugs for things I actually care about. And there's something about that, like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm now, you know, obviously that's a privileged position to be in. uh, And I would have probably made a different decision even last year, but just knowing that I value authenticity more than like cash is nice to know.
1: Yeah. You know, it's privileged, but there's a seed of really important insight there for anyone to take away from this, which is when that happens, when you have an experience like that, one thing I would encourage everyone to do is like, write that down on a piece of paper under you know, core values or something like that. Because I've always found that I have a tough time, like defining, like if I were to sit down and you were to tell me write down your 10 core values, I don't know what the hell I would write. That sounds really daunting. But when I experience something like that and I draw a line in the sand on something like that, now I know like, okay, That is one of my core values. I'm not going to promote anything that I don't genuinely use and benefit from. I'm going to write that down on a piece of paper. And when you write that down, now you're like, okay, I'm starting to build that list of things that I really care about. And maybe it's Mm. five, maybe it's 10, maybe it's 20 eventually. But now I know. Like, I've written it down, that line in the sand that I drew mentally. I've now like verbalized and really put it somewhere and as that builds and compounds i've just generally found that that makes a huge huge difference because that like it's written somewhere now it feels like it's really cemented into you know how you operate and how you do business with people
0: i really like that i've literally just written that down like core values list because I've, I've done a bunch of these exercises to try and figure out your core values and i've never really vibed with so many hard. of them It's so hard to do. I think generally, like, uh,
1: structure is, like, the enemy of progress on these things. Like, people are always, you know, the big one for me has been journaling. Like, oh, gratitude Mm. practice and journaling. And everyone's like, oh, you have to journal and you have to do gratitude practice and you have to do all these things. And what I realized was, like, if I tried to force myself into a structure around any of those, I just didn't do it. It was like, oh, now it feels like a chore and I'm not going to do it. So what I did was I was like, look, my daily gratitude practice is going to be, the hard line on it is going to be that I'm going to three things at the end of every single day that I felt grateful for I can either write them or I might just say them in my head when I'm in the shower before going to bed or lying in bed but I'm going to do that and that for me ended up making all the difference in my life like removing the feeling that I had to sit down and write it down in a journal suddenly it became very accessible for me to do and it's made a huge difference in my life but I personally think that like having too much structure or making something too challenging is holding back so many people from these
0: like simple daily habits that would otherwise really improve their lives one of my, one of the the other kind of moments I have around this core value stuff is I mean I, I did I did a bunch of like about five different core values exercises they all landed on freedom being like the yeah. ultimate true core value and I was like, okay I mean that vibes with with everything I know about myself but then this time last year uh, our accountant and business advisors were suggesting hey, it's currently costing you a million a year to live in the UK. Why not move to Dubai? And mm-hmm. I was like, hmm, okay, interesting. I was sort of talked to some lawyers, talked about this a bunch. And I was like, well, if you do that, you have to become non-tax resident in the UK. And it's like, that means like you can only spend somewhere between 90 and 180 days in the UK every year. And I was like, ugh. That is, the, the price of being in the UK is a million plus a year. But actually, all my friends are here, my family is here, I actually do value the freedom to come and go as I please, and just hang out in the UK, even at the expense Quote, expense of paying a million plus in in taxes every year and I was like yeah that's fine that actually feels really good and that cemented yeah I actually do value freedom more than more than a value money which which was nice because before it was just a theoretical thing but then I had like a concrete example of like where that core value made me make a decision that mm-hmm. someone else may not have chosen to make or that I might have not made it under different circumstances yeah
1: I use like Twitter as my uh, <laughs> my tracking system on some of these this is a hill oh, by yeah. the way that I'm willing to die on the one you just said I'm you know I lived in California for 12 years uh, from the time I went to college until last summer, until July, 2021, when my wife and I moved to New York uh, to be mainly to be closer to family. I have so many friends, like, you know, wealthy friends that have sold companies or done whatever. And they're like, oh, why did you move from the highest tax state in the country to the second highest tax state in the country? Like, why didn't you move to Florida or Texas or one, you know, one of these zero income tax, you would have saved a lot of money. And my answer is always like, yes, I would have you know, objectively saved money on taxes, but to what end? Like, I have no family there. I don't have friends that live in these places, maybe a couple, but like, have you ever been to Florida in the summer? Not, not super nice, like, you know, 100 degrees and super humid every single day, same with Texas. Like, I'm in New York, I'm close to family, I get to see them all the time. I'm super willing to pay a tax, uh, you know, like friction cost for having the life that I want to live around these things. And that means a lot to me. And that's worth way more than the taxes I'm going to save by moving Mm. to to one of these other places.
0: Yeah, I, I, I realized that sort of trade of like money versus vibes recently as well, because... I, again, some some other YouTuber friend I was speaking to was saying that why do you have employees in person? Like, why do you have employees in the UK? In the UK, you have to pay their pension and their insurance, mm. and they want work-life balance. Why not hire people abroad where you can pay them less money and then you just be on Zoom calls with them? And I was like, yeah, but it's just less fun. And it's like I really I really like hanging out with people I in like person. I like people. That's we've put this video. <laughs> yeah, people, it's fun. It's fun <laughs> hanging out with people. I don't particularly enjoy being on Zoom calls all day, but I do enjoy hanging out with people all day. And so, yes it's more expensive and maybe not the best quote business decision, but like the point of the business is instrumental in le- helping me live the life that I want to live while also having the impact that I want to have in that little overlappy Venn diagrammy bit. So it's not really fun. That's why fun. I will die on the hill of working with yeah. people in real life is way more fun than over zoom.
1: And I mean, creator like the creator economy, one of the most challenging parts as a creator is the loneliness of it. I'm sure a lot of your YouTuber friends that are like sort of coming up, like they haven't built the business around themselves yeah. yet. It's just them. I'm sure a lot of them deal with this, where it's like you're on your own, man, and you're having to create constantly. I mean, like, I I don't know what YouTube is like. I imagine it's this way, where you just feel like, you know, you have to create on a consistent cadence, you know, two videos Mm -hmm. a week, whatever the number is, and you're having to come up with new ideas, you're having to post them and create good videos, and you're stressing when the video doesn't perform as well, and you're feeling good when it does, and it impacts your mood, and it's lonely, man. If you're on your own, (laughs) it is lonely. Um, And I, you know, I'm fortunate with Twitter in that, like, I sort of got out like got out of the phase where I needed to do that before it became hyper competitive like now twitter there's so many people writing you know i mean threads have become a whole meme and you know there's so many people writing the same threads and it's just it's a market right it's like anything else where like if you're early to a market which i was i was like probably the first person that was really writing threads consistently you benefit the most and you get out in front and then it becomes much more competitive. And so it's challenging. Mm -hmm. And now, like, if you're in there, it's challenging and you're having to do more cringe things to like try to grow and, um, you know, (laughs) posting whatever. And it's like that on YouTube too, I imagine where like the people that were doing it consistently early on scaled and did really well. And people that are trying to like go start now and build it's more competitive. Like you're really having to figure out new ways to stand out. And so having a team around you and people to help you with that, like emotional and mental side of that struggle I think it's again. It's like you'd pay for that. Like it's it's worth paying for because it means something to your mental state.
0: I'd love to go back to something we talked about um, a bit earlier in the conversation. This idea of default alive mm. from a personal finance perspective. I guess easy enough on the path. Well, uh, it is now kind of the fact that you and I have been doing this for a while for us to, to for us to be at that point. But I wonder if if you were speaking if you were to, if you were speaking to let's say. Uh, someone who's at university or just about to graduate or has just graduated you know so let's say someone in their early 20s get a, going into their first job who's like listening to this and thinking you know what this default to life thing sounds pretty good this financial freedom thing sounds pretty good what would be your like playbook how would you go about mm-hmm. kind of getting to that point from the point I've got a bunch of friends who started finance careers or like worked mm-hmm. at McKinsey or something well how, how would you approach that yeah that journey
1: so For people that aren't familiar with the reference, Paul Graham, the founder of Y Combinator, has this essay called Default Alive or Default Dead, which you can look up. And it was in reference to startups. And it was about, you know, startups are either default alive or they're default dead. And what he meant was that, like, if you stop growing and you just kind of run out the current expense load and the kind of Current growth rate or whatever the revenue is that's coming in, will you you know be able to self-sustain or will you eventually just run out and die? And I read it and you know it's interesting as it applies to startups and it's sort of a bible for startups during recession times like right now. But I think it's more interesting to think about as it relates to yourself. Like you want your own personal situation to be default alive. And so like, what, what would my playbook be? I mean, if I were starting out, I would say the first thing is the systems point, which is figure out like what are your income streams and if you're going to get your one core job, that's obviously going to be your first income stream. I personally think that like figuring out a way to build and create certain, I I think passive income is a little bit of a misnomer that's become a meme. Like no income is truly passive. I've never had passive income in my whole life. There's always something to do, but creating, you know, some sort of side hustle income that allows you to augment that in the early years, I think it's a great time to do that. Like just figure out how to set up certain things, you know, whether that's online income, whether it's like, frankly, you know, doing a little like side hustles, consulting services, et cetera. Figure out what your skills are and how that you, how you can sell those for more than what they cost you from a time perspective and create that income base. Live frugally in the early years, I think it's like a huge, huge advantage. Everyone that I know that did that, I wouldn't say anyone regrets it. Like people that just lived within their means, you know, make sure you're saving money every month and take that money and put it into things that compound. And, you know, I in general think that like money, you know, you, you should just be thinking about investing and compounding in everything you do. And I think that's knowledge. I think that's career skills. And it's definitely money. And for me, that's like do the basics. Like put money into a zero cost um, you know, ETF or mutual fund that is just going to kind of track the market. Don't try to outsmart the market and be the like genius investor. Don't fall victim to the like FOMO when your friend has some like oh, this is 10x with no risk, or this is like 20% yield annually, no risk. It's just like, just avoid it. You know, I've lost money on plenty of those things. Just trust me. It's like (laughs) anything that sounds too good to be true definitely is. So I think it's just doing the basics. Like you will, if you are getting a stable job, and if you're kind of like thinking about and building, you know, augmenting that income along the way, if you're living frugally, and if you're investing that money, everyone can be a millionaire by the time they're, you know, in their mid thirties. Like, it's just it, the math just works out if you, you know, if you live that way. And so I, that, that's what I would encourage people to start with. And like, if you're living that way and you're living frugally, I think it's a huge advantage. The other thing I would say is like, if you are going to scale up your lifestyle, which like, look, I'm sitting here, I'm in a nice house. You know, like I have done those things. I've scaled up my lifestyle as I've, as I've done better. I'm always careful to know what can I scale back? And if I need to, there are things that I can pull back on like, you know different things about our life where I'm like, hey, this wouldn't impact my life in any material way for me to like cut back on this cost. You know maybe it's that I like to take you know Uber Black instead of Uber X. It's a stupid thing, but like you know to get home from the city when it's late or if I want to work in the car, I'll do a more expensive Uber or like maybe I'll take the train instead of Ubering. That'll save me a bunch of money every week. Or maybe like instead of that really nice you know dinner that I like to take a client out to, maybe it's something slightly cheaper. But there's ways that like you think about in your own mind of like, okay, if I need to, I can cut back on this 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 and this and having those levers in your mind it just creates like a stress reduction that is really beneficial to to how you live on a daily basis it's just like this peace of mind that brings a level of calm to the rest of your life
0: okay a bunch of questions on that front observation on this point around cutting back things I like to think I mean I, I these days I, d- I definitely live live within my means but I've had a lot of lifestyle creep over the last like year or two especially as the business has skyrocketed and I decided I was going to move to London and if I'm moving to London I might as well live bang in the middle of central London and like the nicest and it's you know all that kind of stuff and then I, I, f- I find that like depending on what my information diet is I feel differently about this so I, w- I was listening to an episode of my first million where they were interviewing Neil Patel and mm-hmm. talking about yeah, his like crazy two, $250,000 <laughs> a month like burn rate in yeah, like insane. full-time chef full-time housekeeper driver I was like bloody hell that part of me was thinking, oh my God, part of me was thinking that sounds kind of cool. But then I watched a friend, uh, a, a video yesterday of another YouTuber friend of mine called Olier who made a video of how much money he's, he spends in a year. And I was like, it was like 40 grand a year. Yeah. And he was like, yeah, you know, I just live on the basic 40 grand salary. And this guy's making like 800K a year off his YouTube channel and like could easily make more. But he's like living a pretty chill life, does whatever he wants and does it on 40K a year. And I was like, wow. And in a way, like the more of those sorts of people that I see, the people that are living... Frugally, relative to the ridiculous income that they have, the more I feel very satisfied with my current situation of like, actually, yeah, this feels good. But whenever I speak to someone who's like in the ten million plus range and they're talking about like how they fly private because it's it's good ROI and stuff, then I start thinking, oh, maybe I should be trying to grow the business. I I I find myself sort of pulled in 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 different directions, and I always feel like I have to come back to the center of like, no. Let's return to the thing that I actually care about, reading, writing, learning, teaching. I don't need lots of money to do that. (laughs) And anytime I try and chase more of it, it just adds more pressure to making YouTube videos, which like hampers creativity. And it just leads to bad things happening when I try and over-optimize for growth and, and stuff. The
1: one thing I would say as a broad point, anytime, and I don't know this person, but anytime someone boasts or brags about their level of wealth or success, I tend to assume that it is about, you know, one half of what they say. I just think that, like, real, true, ultra-successful people don't really ever brag about their success or their wealth. And so, like, I just tend to assume that they're lying or exaggerating to a significant degree. It's like a schoolyard rule of thumb. Um, But I've generally found that it it to be true. I'm personally just, like, I'm generally super turned off by people that, you know, brag about how they're doing and their wealth and, like, the things that they're doing and how they're, like, flying on certain – I just, like, I don't really care. Like, are you happy – You know, are you interesting? Like, I'd rather talk to my Uber driver who has like some interesting backstory in life than to some like, you know, rich guy who's really showy with his wealth and, you know, flexes on me by telling me how much he spent Mm. on certain things. Just me. Maybe other people feel differently. That's just my perspective. And then look, I mean, my framework for thinking about all this stuff is I love to live in a way where when I want to spend money on something and and I see it, I don't need to worry about it and think about it. And the way that you do that is by living well within your means in normal times. Like, you know, I want to live in a way where I'm making, you know, great money because hopefully I'm creating a bunch of value for the world and for other people. And I'm living on a normal day-to-day basis quite frugally and like, we're super happy. I have, you know, everything I could want kid is healthy, which is the only thing that matters in the world, you know, family's healthy, etc. And if I end up seeing some like cool vacation, or I want to go do something, or I want to like get a new, you know, gym thing for the backyard, and it's expensive, I literally don't need to think about it. Because I know that my normal course life is like, cheap and saving tons of money every month and like if i want to buy some pair of shoes that i really have wanted and they're expensive i used to be in a state when i was working in finance where i was literally like month to month i was making a bunch of money but i was month to month like i'm not really saving much money every single month and i was basically living to what my salary was because of the lifestyle i was living and then when something would come up and there'd be like oh this you know, nice bachelor party and it was going to be expensive, it would stress me out because I'd be like, oh man, that's going to put me over. I'm actually going to lose money this month. Now I'm in a spot where I'm like, I'm actually not spending anywhere near as much as what I was and as what we're, what I'm making from a business standpoint. And so then when the thing comes up, I can feel like excited about it. It doesn't stress me out. I can just get this thing because I'm like really looking forward to it. Or we can go on that little vacation because, and it feels exciting and not stress inducing. And I think that is a huge, huge deal. When you're able to actually go and like buy the thing or um, go on the trip or go invest in the thing and feel excited about it because it is exciting and not stressed because it's like pushing you to the limit, that's a big, big improvement from a lifestyle standpoint.
0: Something a lot of people say, and I, I often say to young young younger people as well uh, as as an old dude that like this uh, this idea of augmenting your income for because you know having being being reliant on a single source of income is not particularly anti-fragile as they say and it's worth like i I don't know anyone who has ever regretted having a side hustle to augment their income it's like it's always a a thing that people are really glad for but then there's often like you know when i when encouraging friends to do this there will often be a little bit of a pushback of like yeah but you know, when I get home from work, I'm super tired and I know I need two hours of Netflix to unwind. And then I know I want to do my, I don't know, go to the spa and chill there for an hour. And I know I want to talk to my family for an hour. And then that, then it's time for bed and it's time to, time to sleep and and start the day and start the the day afresh. And I don't want to be working on the weekends because like work life balance and stuff. And I'm always like, okay, fair enough. If that, if that's what you've decided that you want to do with your life, then great. You know, you do you as long, as long as you're happy, that's fine. But in the back of my mind, I'm always kind of thinking, do you really need those two hours of Netflix? Like Will your future self not be more glad if you actually mm-hmm. didn't spend that time watching Netflix and instead spent that time learning how to code, building a website? Mm-hmm. But then I think, am I just some hustle bro, productivity bro who's just like over-indexed on everyone should have a side hustle? What do you reckon?
1: <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts on this. I mean, look, I, I think in general, everyone has to figure out what works for them and their life, and what makes them happy to the way that you said it. I tend to think that most people actually work a small fraction of the amount of time that they think they're working. You know, like, I I worked in a mainstream office, right? Like, I was there, I worked 90-hour weeks. How many of those hours were spent, like, browsing ESPN.com or, you know, on, you know, on the wall street journal or whatever, because I was like waiting for some work to come in and you just find ways to fill time. It's, it's called Parkinson's law. It's like work finds a way to expand to the amount of time allotted for it. And so, you know, that you have to be at work from nine to five for the entire week. You just find a way to fill that. It's not that you're doing productive work for eight hours a day. No one does that. It's impossible to focus for eight hours a day. It's literally like physically scientifically impossible. And so my thing is always like a, I don't really believe that most people need the two hours to like unwind from that during the day because you were sort of unwinding during the day in some way, you know, whether you were like browsing things or took a lunch break or whatever it was. And B, I think there's like just a better way to work in that context. And like if you can find a way during your workday to work in, you know, 60 minute blocks of like true focus and then go take a walk or like you know, relax or do something that is different during a you know separate period, read something that is improving you, etc. I think you can find ways to like hack the normal work life so that you're actually making progress in other arenas if you want to. And if what you decide will make you happy will be, you know, having a de-risked financial situation by having multiple streams of income by being more anti-fragile, then I think you can do that without saying that I need to come home and work for five hours a night or work five hours every weekend day. The other thing that I would say is that, like, generally, side hustles need to be something that you actually care about and, like, want to go do. Uh, You can, you know, I I know people who have, like, done a side hustle as an Uber driver, DoorDash, or whatever it is. I think you can do that. It's not ever going to be great leverage on your time. It's just the reality of it. The best leverage on your time is going to be things that you have a skill at that you can sell to someone for more than what they cost you to provide. And, like, whether that's online, you know, you create a course and you're selling it and it's infinitely scalable. Or if it's like services, like, hey, I'm, you know, really good at building financial models because I work in finance. Well, there's a lot of startups that will pay you like 10 grand to go make a financial model. And if you can figure out a way to sell your services to those people, you can go make a lot of money. Like I, I know I found a bunch of those startups and I was helping people get it. I was taking like clipping a fee for connecting them with financial analysts at one point, like I was hustling doing that. But there's a huge market for that, that like investment banking analysts, if you wanted to work a little more on the weekend and like, build a model because you kind of enjoy it, you could make way more than what your hourly rate is from your investment-making job by doing that. So that's, I mean, like, I just generally think there's an infinite number of opportunities out there. And the reality is that opportunity is not what's lacking. What's lacking is people that are willing and able to go and capitalize on those opportunities.
0: Yeah, I really like that framing of it. We're in the middle of one of our cohorts for part-time YouTuber Academy, cohort six uh, at the moment. And people always ask repeatedly, hey, how did you manage to do the YouTube channel thing while working as a doctor? Yeah. And my answer is always like, well, A, I've been answering this for the last like five years, but I'm happy to continue doing it if, because, I mean, it's obvious to me, but it seems to still be novel to other people. But it was always that like, you know, even working a 60 hour week as a doctor, yes, yes, there are some days that are like back-to-back chock-a-block, but most days there's like some amount of downtime. You know, you've got to ring radiology and you've got to wait five minutes on the phone because they're on the phone. There's a, a queue. You can't really do anything else because you, you've got to call radiology. So in that time, I'd just be opening up Notion on my shitty Windows computer at work and just planning out a video. Or you wait five minutes because a patient's gone to the toilet and you need to wait for them to take the blood. There's mm-hmm. always like little bits of downtime here and there. Where one option is you flick through Instagram or Twitter, and the other option is you open up Notion or Apple Notes and draft out your next video, and that's that's the way I hacked <laughs> even a workday as a doctor. Which, you know, most people are not saying they're browsing ESPN, but like they are waiting around for something or other to happen, and j- j- tend to be browsing Instagram instead.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I only uh, realized yeah. this when COVID hit. Like, I mean, I was in the office a lot or traveling a lot, and I only realized how much actual like work hours to down hours I had. When I wasn't in the office, and so like the work kind of became more transactional, and so I was going from thing to thing, and realized that the like friction time in between stuff was actually totally free, and I had just been finding ways to fill it with random stuff that wasn't necessarily productive, and so that was a big unlock for me personally. But yeah, I mean, I like I have now found that like my best thinking, business thinking, creative work, etc., comes on like a walk or while I'm driving in silence in the car or in the shower or something. And so I mean, I just I literally just carry little notebooks around with me everywhere I go. I tend to not use my phone um, when I'm walking, so like I carry these little notebooks around and just write stuff down. And they tend to have like all of my best ideas or sketches or whatever it is that I'm working on.
0: I like that thing that you said around you uh, it's something along the lines of your side hustle needs to be something you actually enjoy. A good friend of mine is a sort of sort of baby youtuber. I well, actually has been you know like somewhere between ten and twenty k subs, and he's been doing it for like a year and a bit, that kind of thing. and one thing that she says is that like the YouTube videos are kind of fun, but like She doesn't enjoy it as much as I seem to. And she's like, well, I could take this more seriously, but I'd really only be doing it for the potential for money further down the line. And I'm not inherently interested in the thing. Whereas I think for me, I was lucky because I picked a thing that I was inherently interested in. How important do you think it is to genuinely enjoy the side hustle you're doing versus treat it more like, instrumental for the sake of building some amount of financial freedom further down the line
1: i think there has to be a level of intrinsic motivation from from joy that you get from it the reason i say that is just because there's two sides to this right there's like intensity and there's consistency i think that money can create intensity like i think that you can see like oh i'm gonna make a million dollars this year and it's gonna make me focus a ton and i'm gonna really grind it out and you know put in all these hours and do this i'm gonna get the bonus or i'm gonna make my youtube channel big whatever But the consistency and your ability to show up every single day when you feel good, when you don't feel good, when you're tired, when it's a holiday, when your family has something and you have to miss it, like that consistency only comes from enjoying it. And from wanting to be a part of it and enjoying the process around it and enjoying the ups and downs. Like it's not always gonna be good. You're gonna put things out you're proud of and they're not gonna go anywhere. You're gonna get punched in the face. Haters are gonna tell you they want you to go burn in a house. You know, like all of that stuff. The consistency only comes from enjoying it along the way. And like I you know, I, I will say this until the cows come home. The biggest driver of my success in anything in life has always been that I am consistent. Baseball I was never the most talented, never going to be the most talented, but I was just going to show up every single day and just come at you over and over and over again. And it's really hard to beat someone that does that. Like it's just very hard to durably beat someone that just keeps getting up, keeps showing up. And I felt that way when I took, you know, my approach to Twitter. It was like I might not write the most viral post ever. I've still, <clears throat> you know, never had a post that goes over I mean, now I just had my biggest one ever, but never had something go over 100,000 likes. I see people putting out like 10 Excel tips and it goes over 100,000 likes. And it's crazy to me. Like, I've never done that. But I have written something on Twitter every single week, you know, since May of 2020. And I would stack that consistency up against anyone in the world that has, you know, been around during that period. And so people are like, oh, what's the hack? You know, how did you grow to this big? I'm like, well... The hack is that I wrote two hundred fifty thousand words on Twitter over the course of the last two years. Like that's the hack. I spent you know thousands of hours writing on the weekends. You know while people were out doing fun stuff. Like I just I enjoyed it and I got energy out of it and so I wanted to keep doing it. And I think you have to enjoy it in order to do that because otherwise I would have just been miserable. I would have been at home writing. You know Mm -hmm. working long hours because I was trying to balance it against my day job until I ended up doubling down on this. And um, the enjoyment is so key to creating that consistency.
0: When it comes to this enjoyment, to what extent do you think it's finding something you enjoy versus finding enjoyment in the thing? If you go, if you get what I'm trying to mm, say. I think it's the latter, actually. You know, and I've never really thought about
1: the characterization there. I personally, I don't think you know whether you enjoy something until you really get into the weeds on it. Like if no. I waited to only pursue things that I thought I was passionate about at the outset, yeah. if I just didn't pursue anything because I wasn't passionate about it, I think I would have missed a lot of really cool things along the way. I just think you don't realize you're passionate about something until you get into the weeds. Like, I didn't know I was passionate about writing. I had one idea to, to write this thing on Twitter. Like, it was May 12th, 2020. I was out on a walk, and I had this idea come to me, and I was like, man, I really want to write this one thing. I wasn't passionate about writing on Twitter. I wrote this one thing, It picked up because it was clear that it came across it resonated and so then i was like oh there was something to that let me write another thing and as i started doing it i realized i was getting a lot of energy from the writing and from the research and from learning about it but i didn't like set out saying i love writing things on twitter i i didn't even consider myself a writer i didn't think of myself as someone that loved writing and along the way, I found this immense love for writing, immense love for like sharing, you know, self improvement or productivity knowledge or different insights around these things. And, you know, that was what the big unlock was for me. And so I, I think it's the, I really do think it's the latter. It's like, you, you know, you find an enjoyment in something as you pursue yeah. it. And that only comes from trying things. And so, like, I think if there's one lesson to take away from it, it's to go experiment, try things, you know, and be quick to, switch, like test and learn very quickly and try things and like yeah. double down on the things you really enjoy and that you learn and that you're, that you're growing around.
0: Yeah, I've, I've, I totally agree. This is, in fact, the thesis of the book that I'm writing, where it's like the secret to sustainable productivity really is to find a way to make what you're doing already, find a, find a way to make it more energizing. I, uh, and I think it's that question of like, does this thing currently give me energy? And if not, can I pull on the various levers that we know from the science and the research and stuff that which tend for most people to correspond to stuff being energizing you know power play people autonomy mastery purpose all these other things that am in the process of writing about all of that stuff is stuff that really can apply to almost anything that we're doing because the whole the whole thing of like follow your passion and is is sort of a bit of a, a thing that's reserved for people with decent amounts of privilege to be able to spend all day playing the guitar which is the thing that I truly enjoy but there's what what I found is that like with the YouTube channel, with the podcast, with writing, with medicine, with random stuff at university, with anything I've done, the more I've lent into the stuff that within those specific things fills me with energy rather than drains my energy. And the more I've been able to sort of use that as a guiding framework for like, is this energizing? Is it draining? If not, let's make it more energizing. The more it's just felt like I'm operating on like easy mode because nothing feels like I'm pushing a boulder up the hill and it never feels like I need to use discipline to put out a YouTube video because I'm just doing the bits that are energizing and I'm just not doing the bits that are not.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting, it is a really interesting framing. I do think things, you have to give things time to get to easy mode. Like my newsletter, I would say for the first, nine months i mean i've only been doing it for i guess 14 months now but for the first like nine or ten it really felt like it was on hard mode i would say only in the last couple months have i felt like oh my god this is fun i really enjoy this this feels easy for me it feels like flow state when i'm doing it and that's cool it's cool when you feel that that something all of a sudden becomes easy i I always like i use a lot of like sports or fitness analogies but i there was this hill i started running earlier this summer because it was nice out i hadn't ran like really in my whole life i was like ah this is a thing it's good for me i like to be outside let me try it so i started running and there was this hill near my house i'm a very competitive person i ran up it i told myself i was going to run up this hill and i ran up and i was gassed like completely dead you know had to stop couldn't really make it up the whole hill And I was like, man, screw that. Like, is that hill? Like, that was so hard that that happened. So what I said was like, I'm going to run up that hill every single day for the next 30 days. And I don't care, like, whether I feel good or not. I'm just going to run up it every day for 30 days. And I just finished that 30 days. And yesterday, I went out for a run, and that hill was right at the end. And I ran up the hill, and I, like, got to the top and felt great. And I was like, man, I just completely like in the span of 30 days that hill went from being like a nemesis like i thought i was gonna die feeling fresh and running up it to like it was like my dessert at the end of this run i ran up and felt totally good and it's like a a powerful metaphor in there of like 30 days is really all it takes sometimes to go from feeling like you know beginner mode to expert mode on something Mm -hmm. um it's just dedicated effort consistently applied
0: yeah i love that it takes time to get from hard mode to easy mode yeah (laughs) That's very good. Yeah, so few things are easy mode from day one, and if they are, it sort of feels a bit suspect. Yeah, there's always a little, that that little bit of like discomfort in the early stages. Generally, I find like if I think back to a YouTube channel early days where it was like a struggle to edit, there was that feeling of like, ooh, nice! I've I've got I've I've vanquished this beast at the end of it. So I got mm. a little bit of like a dopamine head out of like, yes, it felt like a lot of work to do this thing, but I'm glad like. Maybe I wasn't happy while doing it, but I definitely felt fulfilled afterwards. And then uh, over time I got started to get happy during the editing thing. And mm. because of, then I started to appreciate the craft itself rather than viewing it purely as an obstacle to overcome, to do the thing I actually wanted, which was to get the video out. Um, so I have a question
1: yeah. for you on this general topic. So I have, I don't know, zero subscribers on YouTube. I don't know what my actual number, maybe I have like five. Effectively zero. But I do think that I have a lot of really interesting written content that would make some amazing videos, like just taking the yeah, written content, and turning them into videos that I could kind of talk about, narrate over, et cetera. I, you know, I, I've been told maybe that I have a face for radio, but I think I could manage it. <laughs> what advice would you have? If, if I were going to pursue in it, like it's terribly daunting to me because I have zero videos, 21 yeah. subscribers. I just checked, big, big subscriber count, 3.199 million away from you. So, like, what what advice would you give to someone that was, you know, in my shoes? You have a bunch of content, et cetera. Like, try it, don't try it, you know, dedicate, you have to dedicate a ton of time to it. Like, how, how would you think about it?
0: Loads to unpack. I would think about it in the sense of there's three levels level one level two level three level one is get going level two is get good and level three is get smart and in between these different levels you have a choice that you need to make so level one is get going that's just so what i'd what i'd say to you or anyone else in this position is just make five videos and see what happens just like don't overthink it what would this look like if it were easy do the tim Ferriss thing take one of your tweets like literally just even on this very setup you have with a podcast with a microphone just like just chat through it because you're good <laughs> at talking and you know all that stuff and see how it feels mm-hmm. five videos in at that point you have a decision to make of like do I want a casual relationship with YouTube or do I want a serious relationship with YouTube serious meaning am I going to commit to doing this consistently casual being like oh I'll post I'll clip my I'll send this po- anytime I do a podcast I'll send a rec- I'll send the video to my uh, an outsourced editor and they'll just chuck clips of me on that's like casual because you're not really taking it seriously mm-hmm. serious is like I'm going to commit to it beyond once you've decided that it's serious at that point, it's get good, which is like, okay, let's actually get good at making videos. Let's see like, what does it take to make a good video title, thumbnail, hook, blah, 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 blah. Let's dial in my production value, stick a light in the background, stick a plant in the background, figure Mm -hmm. out what I want to do. And at some point, and I think this will happen pretty quickly for you because you are pretty experienced in this content stuff your videos will be quote, sufficiently good that you don't cringe at them. And you'll start to see some level of traction, again, gonna happen quicker for you because you've got a stupidly large audience on Twitter. So you can always transition some audience from Twitter to YouTube. Now, once you're, once you're at the point where you're not cringing at your videos anymore, at that point, they're good enough. And now most of the gains, I mean, g- improving at YouTube is a lifelong endeavor, of course. <laughs> but now most of the gains are gonna come from getting smart. And at that point, the, the, the question is on the spectrum, do I wanna treat this like a hobby or do I wanna treat this like a business? And the more on the businessy end of the spectrum you are, the more you then start doing the things that a startup would do: market research, competitor analysis. How are you going to stand out? What's your niche going to be? Who's your, you know, interviewing target audience? And like figuring out what what people want, looking at analytics and trends and all that jazz. Looking at other vi- other people in your niches, viral videos to see if you can replicate their performance and their success, and do it but do it in your own way. And you start to get into all of those like business strategy parts of YouTube. But I think the mistake people make is they overthink their niche. They overthink like, what's my target audience? What's my niche? Like, I don't want to make videos about that, which is sort of like a level three thing while they're at like level zero or level one and they haven't started making any videos yet. So I think you could absolutely bang on YouTube to be honest. But a big part of it is because you don't need it. So it's really a case of, do you enjoy doing the thing? you seem pretty natural and confident on camera. So I think it's, it's definitely worth trying. Interesting. Super, super
1: helpful. I appreciate all the, all the perspectives. And the idea of just like outsourcing the whole thing, what do you think about people doing that? Like, you know, pay, paying a bunch of money, like, you know, it costs a lot, honestly. Like the people that have quoted me on doing this, you know, two, four videos a month, whatever. It's super expensive, but there'll be really high production value from the get-go because you're, you know, giving it to people that really know it. What do you think about that?
0: I think it's reasonable. I think you cannot outsource the writing of your own mm. videos totally i have tried so hard it's mm. impo- basically impossible to do, <laughs> and everyone's spoken to is really 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 struggled with this unless you're like a vox media or a wendover productions where you're researching scripts and it's not a personality but i suspect you want to be a personality channel yeah but if you i mean absolutely outsourcing the editing to make it look slick would be yeah, completely totally reasonable but there's no mm. getting away from the fact that you actually have to do the work yourself totally. and that work is totally. brought me in the writing totally. <laughs> but you're a writer anyway so you are probably totally. chill about that all right well cool I have a couple other questions and oh yeah afterwards I'll send you uh, free access to all of my courses about this so if you are interested you can just oh, create and basically download my brain into yours if you want to do the YouTube thing how do you make money these days
1: man this is going to be a long conversation <laughs> <What is that? laughs> um, <What's the> <laughs> yeah so I, I mentioned I have the kind of agency advisory business you know that's broadly <laughs> speaking helping startups with social and content like narrative really narrative and storytelling you know and that's mostly across written content mostly like Twitter newsletter or, you know, have a few writers on staff and, you know, helping with strategy, execution and amplification of, of content. That kind of, you know, is a is a pretty self-sustaining business. I have my fund, which is a $10 million venture fund that I invest in early stage technology companies, 100 to 250K checks. You know, that's really a long-term wealth creation vehicle. You know, I take a percentage of Where the profits. Where did you get at,
0: that 10 million from? Are you getting... Um, LPs is it or is it? Yeah, so I did a traditional
1: fund, not a rolling fund. So I have three anchor LPs that are kind of larger checks and then a long list of, you know, really like some institutions and high net worth individuals. A lot of that was because I had spent my first seven years of my career in in high finance and so had a lot of relationships and, you know, LPs, et cetera, from my private equity days that, uh, you know, that I was able to go talk to and kind of tell the story of what I was going to go build. When did you make the fund? January 2022. So just a few
0: months ago. Oh, damn. Yeah. Yeah. So how, how did you just like if I wanted to make a fund, can I just make a fund? Like, how, how the hell does that work? I know I know, I know basically nothing. I don't, don't even know what LP yeah, stands with, for. I so um, like I'm a complete beginner to this.
1: So AngelList as a, as a platform makes it very yeah. easy to go create a fund. You could do it a couple of different ways. You could do a syndicate, which is people can kind of subscribe to see deals that you're looking at, and then they can, on a deal-by-deal basis, decide whether to invest in something. That is economically the best way for you to do it, because then you get carried interest, so like a percentage of the profits, on a deal-by-deal basis, rather than than across an entire fund so you know having a dud doesn't matter because it's just like on an individual deal or you can do a rolling fund which would be you know basically people subscribe to your fund on a quarterly basis in a minimum amount you can publish that on YouTube or on Twitter or wherever your channels are and people could who want to kind of like invest alongside you because they believe in the things you're doing and the value you create they could invest alongside you i did a traditional fund which means you can't market it on Twitter you cannot market it publicly i did that mainly because i had the relationships and you know lp interest that i didn't need to at the time i think in future I would open it up so that more people would come into future funds, and I would market it more broadly so that other people could could invest alongside me. But for this first one, I wanted to kind of keep it pretty tight in how I uh, in how I pursued it.
0: Okay, this sounds pretty cool. I'm I'm going to need to ask you more questions about this rolling fund at some point. You've got this fund. You decided in January you're going to make a fund. You raised ten million dollars from like people that you just knew because you worked in finance for like ages. And now you invest in companies and you've given them 100k to 250k, and you're hoping that over time some of them will become the next Stripe and. Return the fund is is that the idea or what? yeah Stripe would be
1: great I would I would I would uh, I would not be doing any more uh, any more podcasts uh, if if one of them turns <laughs> into Stripe no yeah I mean generally speaking it's like pre seed and seed investing so you're investing at valuations between ten and or you know maybe five million and. $25 million. And, you know, the goal is that you're, you know, seeing some of those become billion dollar companies. And so, you know, you're seeing 25, you know, turn into a couple billion dollars and those companies go public or they're acquired. And, you know, the 100K that you put in becomes worth $10 million in a, you know, in a great outcome and 100X outcome. And, you know, the general goal is that you kind of, you know, 5X the value of the fund. So you turn $10 million into 50, I would say would be like a supreme, amazing outcome. 10X would be like astronomical you know, you turn 10 million into 100, you know, 2, 3x is like average probably, and you've done okay. But the whole goal is that you're, you know, delivering outsized returns to your investors, and then you get a percentage of the profit. So I take 25% of the profits that I generate. So if I 5x the fund, I take $10 million back from that.
0: Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. For, okay, from from what you know, this is a bit of a subject question. From from what you know about like what I do on on YouTube and stuff. Do you think it's reasonable for me to think about doing a rolling fund?
1: Yes. Yeah. I mean, this is very broadly like in line with my thesis on where the world is heading. And so like I'm more than happy to catch up with you more on this and, you know, give you kind of more of a playbook around yeah. it as well because my general perspective is that we've had this like barbell that has formed around the investing landscape within early stage companies and what what's happened is you have the like really high name brand venture funds on one end, you know, the Sequoias, Andreessen Horowitz, you know, Tiger Global, some of these like really big brand name funds that when they invest, it's a huge marker to say like, wow, stamp of approval on this company, amazing investors. And then there's this like wasteland of like kind of like mid-tier VCs that it's very, it's been very unclear for a long time. What is their value add? And a lot of them do have like very clear value add. And so I don't want to, you know, dunk on them. They're great, but a lot of them don't. And a lot of them are just like, A VC that's managed to raise some money and their performance isn't great and it's unclear what value they're going to bring to the company that they invested in. Then on the other end of this barbell, you have people like me who have one very clear lever of value that they can bring to you. For me, that's like, I'm going to get eyes on what you're doing and you know amplify things that you're putting out when you're announcing things when you're making announcements i can create a video when you you know announce your fundraise that's going to get tons of eyes on what you're doing it's going to help with you know customers fundraising recruiting etc and that is super valuable and for a small check size it's really easy for me to make the case that i should be invested in the company and the whole game is you need to see the best deals and then you need those companies to want you to invest because they can take money from anywhere and if they have a 10 million dollar fundraising round there's 100 million of demand for that 10 million you need to make sure that you're one of those you know dollars that gets put into this thing and so having that clear lever of value is a huge huge advantage you clearly have that you have a huge platform that you can talk about these companies around organically and you know help support them along the way the key is like there's no free lunches right and you can't just be promoting companies constantly on your on your different networks and channels and so it's finding that balance where it's like hey People care about the things that I care about. I'm only going to invest in companies that I'm really passionate about mm. and that I believe strongly in. And so when I'm talking about them, I'm not shilling this company. I'm talking about something that I care about because if I've invested in it, it matters to me. Um, and so I think drawing
0: that line is really important long term. Sick. Okay. I am definitely going to hit you up to chat about this more because this sounds actually kind of fun. But what else is in the Sahil portfolio?
1: Yeah, all the media stuff. So podcast, You know, we have sponsors on every episode that's yeah. growing nicely and doing well newsletter you know uh sponsored uh send it out twice a week over the course of the month and then i have like a handful of random things like job board i have a course that i run from time to time i've got a couple of affiliate things for stuff that i really am excited about and products that i use a lot and kind of like a smattering of other things and then i'm a co-owner of a couple of businesses on the side that i don't talk about publicly that are just kind of cash flow streams in general
0: nice that sounds pretty cool so you've got this portfolio
1: yeah yeah what does your Yeah, I've got a, bu- I mean, like, like, when you talk about diversity of, uh, <laughs> of income streams, I've got a lot, um, which is great. I mean, it's uh, from two years ago, where I had one to today, where I feel like I have a ton. That's been pretty exciting yeah. for me to see that all play out. And, you know, look from my from my prior time and experience in the in the private equity world, I still have, you know, kind of profit interest in the funds and in different companies that I invested in from those days. So I do feel pretty diversified more more broadly across across a bunch of different things that I get energy from, which is great. What does your daily calendar look like? Very open, man. Oh, um, I love it. I intentionally don't spend, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I don't spend time on calls really anymore. And this has been a big shift for me. I used to be, I mean, in finance, it was like you were call to call, just stacked over and over, over the course of the day. And I've just got, I got so burned out from that. And so now, I mean, I almost don't take calls like other than for the fund, which I will do calls for to like deals I get really excited about. I'll do the work beforehand to make sure I'm excited. And then I'll take a call. Other than that, I don't do many calls. And so my calendar is like, I don't have a single thing on it before 11am. That's like my you know, morning. So when I wake up in the morning, I do, you know, my general morning routine is like, I do some morning mobility work for a few minutes, a little bit of breathing, go get a coffee. I have a cold plunge that I just got. So I'm going to start doing that for five minutes. And then I will sit and kind of like write, read, etc. Generally speaking, I'll have my son with me now during that time, like he'll, you know, kind of sit, sleep, relax with me while I do that. My wife can, you know, rest and sleep and then, you know, go for a walk, have breakfast with my wife, kind of have like a period of relaxation. I'll work out during that time. And then my day starts and my day is like, blocked into kind of blocks of focus work, like I said earlier. So I'll have, you know, generally speaking, like 60 minute blocks of kind of focus on something. And maybe that's recording a podcast. Maybe that's doing something like this. Maybe it's writing for my newsletter, but just sort of like targeted things that I'm trying to get done. Maybe it's something with the business. And between those, you know, I take like 15, 30 minutes, go for a walk, clear my head, whatever it might be. But in general, I'm like huge on the unstructured schedule. If you look at my schedule on any given week, it's like, massive blocks of open time
0: what does your team look like if if any
1: (laughs) so i have a few different things so on the on the agency side i have a couple writers who help with things on that just like you know kind of creating content and executing on the fund it's just me today on newsletter, I have a team that kind of helps with the like business side of it, you know, sponsors and kind of similarly on the podcast, have a team that helps with production and sponsors and all of those business sides of it. And then I'm kind of in the process of bringing on like a chief of staff to just help more broadly over the top on, on kind of everything. So team is pretty light. Um, It's, you know, intentionally pretty streamlined and all of the content is still created by me, which has always been important to me. Like I still write all of my own content and, uh, and put all of that out. And so is this like employees or contractors? Like what's the, what's the setup here? Contractors. Contractors. Yeah. I I don't have, trying to think. No, I don't have any employees formally. So no, no like benefits or pension or anything like that. It's all, all, uh, you know, kind of monthly contractors.
0: Damn. Okay. That's, that's pretty interesting. There's so many more questions about this that I'd love to ask in a, in a part two. I wanted to ask before we, we close things off. You're pretty ripped. What's what's your workout routine? How do I how do I get ripped like you? (laughs) (laughs) Oh man,
1: Uh, fifteen years of consistent workouts. No, no, no. um, No, I I'm pretty like OCD man. When I when I want to get locked in on something, I just I stick to it. And so I mean, like I go back and forth. I like I'm sort of like Tim Ferriss in that I like experimenting with different things and seeing what works for me and what doesn't. So. I, um, I have a trainer who kind of sends me all my workout programs. I have a gym at, at my house um, that's, that's all built out now with all the fun stuff in it. And from a diet perspective, I, you know, sort of like I'll try different things. So for a month, I'll do like hardcore keto, you know, won't eat a carb for a month and see how my body responds to it. I'll like do blood testing around it and see, you know, how I perform, sort of a nerd about those things. Right now I'm doing more of like counting macros and kind of like doing a carb cycling thing to see how I perform around that. But I don't know, man. I mean, I do, I physically train every single day. I do something mainly just cause I love it. Like I just, it's my, probably my number one hobby is just like, I love being active. I love getting outside. I love doing this stuff.
0: Okay. I've, uh, I've got a personal trainer now, you know, he comes to my place three times a week and it's like, uh, you know, Whenever, when I see it scheduled on the calendar, I'm like, I know this is going to be hard work. I know it's not going to be particularly fun. Sometimes it is, but like yesterday was leg day and God, I hate leg day. And it's like, I, I have some friends who seem to genuinely love weight training, but unless I'm doing like a bench press or just like a deadlift, it does like the two things that I enjoy. Everything else feels like a lot of work and a lot of pain, and a lot of suffering is there like a mental model shift that i can make to start enjoying this kind of stuff like or is it like you have to do it for ages on hard mode before it becomes easy mode like how do you-
1: no i mean i think there's a component of that i also think you should have it tailored to the things you do enjoy doing and make those like upfront so that you can find the motivation. Like I I will tell my trainer, sometimes my trainer will program like, you know, five sets of 10 rep squats. And that like, to me, when I look at that on my calendar, I'm just like, I don't want to do this workout. Cause that, that to me is like sucking wind. I'm going to be dying for five sets of squats. I'm not going to feel like I got stronger Mm -hmm. because I'm just going to be miserable and it demotivates me. And so like, I'll tell him, I don't want that at the beginning. Like just give me something that feels exciting for me to dive into it because I find that it's like it's like jumping into a cold lake or getting into a cold plunge. Once you're in it's fine. It's the like getting in that's the hardest part and like the anticipation of it. And so I would just like if you love deadlifts and you love bench like have your trainer bring that to the front. Like do I mean you could do a dumbbell bench and then a and then a bar bench on multiple days and be totally fine or you could do neutral grip or close grip or whatever and like change it up but just something that gets you into it similarly with deadlift you trap bar you do straight bar sumo whatever just like a hip hinge movement that you might like similarly like an rdl you know you can find a way to like hack your your kind of motivation around it sick
0: Right, Sahil, I think we'll, we'll we'll draw this to a close there. Thank you so much. This has been wonderful. I still have a long list of other things to ask you in my little notebook, but um, hopefully we can do a part two in person, potentially. I would love to do it in person. Excellent, yeah. I'm in the process of applying for an O-1 visa for the US, so fingers crossed that works. But if not, then you're coming to London at some point soon. So we can we can get together and, and record in person sometime.
1: Either way, we will make it happen. I'm looking forward Sick. to it, man. Thank you so thank much. Thank you so
0: much. Uh, where can people find you if they want to learn more about you?
1: I am at Sahil Bloom on Twitter. Um, and then my newsletter you can find at sahilbloom.com. Perfect.
0: Sahil, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Take care of yourself. And uh, thank you for listening, everyone. See you later. All right, so that's it for this week's episode of Deep Dive. Thank you so much for watching or listening. All the links and resources that we mentioned in the podcast are gonna be linked down in the video description or in the show notes, depending on where you're watching or listening to this. If you're listening to this on a podcast platform, then do please leave us a review on the iTunes store. It really helps other people discover the podcast. Or if you're watching this in full HD or 4K on YouTube, then you can leave a comment down below and ask any questions or any insights or any thoughts about the episode. That would be awesome. So yeah, thank you very much for listening. I'll catch you hopefully in the next episode.